It is really a joy to watch you all walk into this hall. It is really amazing to see the care and precision and attention and consideration for one another that is in movement as you come into the hall. In some way, our behavior is a reflection of the qualities of mind that we are most developing here. Tranquility and alertness. The other night, as I drove up here and turned into the driveway, my lights shone across a deer standing in the field. And I am reminded how the deer really is maybe the most exquisite, delicate, uh, big animal around. And it is so graceful in the way it moves through the tangled forest around here. And it has the grace and sensitivity in moving through the forest. There is a balance of extraordinary alertness. If you've ever watched a deer, you see that every sense door is wide open. Seeing, hearing, smelling, sensing in any way they can whatever's in the environment. And yet with that extraordinary alertness, they are also very still. And striking that balance in them appears to be pretty effortless. When you watch a deer, when you, when you look at a deer, you really don't get a sense that they are lost in thought. <laughs> you know, they, they really don't seem like they're, you know, ruminating over some past incident they had with a hunter last year or a, a piece of barbed wire that they tried to jump across or something. And they're carrying a lot of resentment and anger and, uh, you know, frustration and disappointment. And by their meanderings, they obviously don't plan very much. And so maybe we should use deer as our teachers and see if we couldn't somehow discover within ourselves that balance of these two qualities, tranquility and alertness. By now, even those who've just arrived a few days ago have discovered, and those who've been here six weeks have had plenty of time to discover just how much of our time we spend lost in some other realm of existence than here now. 
how extraordinarily difficult it is for any number of reasons to just be simply tranquil and alert in the present moment. It is unbelievably difficult. And so we might ask ourselves, what keeps us from being here now? Why? What distracts us? What is so much more compelling than what our sense doors can bring us in this moment? We spend a considerable amount of time lost in dreams, dream sleeping, dreams waking, dreams with our eyes wide open, walking around, lost in some other dream, interpretation, some other perception than being here now with things just as they are. And our practice really is this waking up out of this dreamlike existence. And we've all had the experience of being lost in thought for a period of time. And with no particular effort, no particular intention, without applying any technique, we're back. And we recognize it, we're back, here we are, right here. That's how unconstructed or uh, uh, unintended mindfulness really is. Our challenge in practice is to recognize it. To recognize the reality that mindfulness awakens us to. If we spend so much of our time lost in dreams, lost in thought, what is it that creates the dream? What is it that spins this thread in our mind of meaning, understanding, uh, interpretation that spins this little cocoon around us, creating a reality out of this very tangible sensory experience, creating a mental reality cocoon that we then live in. It's as if we live enchanted by our internal dialogue, or I should say internal monologue. We have this conversation with ourselves most of the day. A commentary on our life, narrating our life. And it goes like this. Oh, here I am. Here I am, a yogi on retreat. Third sitting of the day. How am I doing? Pretty good. Well, first sitting was good. Second one, not so good. I'm feeling a little better now. I think I should try a little meta. And and the story goes on. And that that's just that's just the introduction, you know. And then and the story goes on. And we talk to ourselves all day. 
And now we all firmly believe that we are yogis on retreat. <laughs> Living inside a cocoon of this dream spun out of words. And the reality of seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, breathing, stepping, only occasionally interferes with the dream. I mean, it, we laugh, you know, we laugh because it's so true. That's our discovery of practice. That's what practice is, the discovery of just how much time we spend lost in a dream, narrating our life. We are held under this spell, or enchanted, or entranced, bewitched, by the words that go through our mind. And our practice is to awaken to that stream of thought. To come out of that illusion, to, to, to drop into the present moment, to become disenchanted with our internal monologue. But disenchantment implies a certain unsatisfactoriness. You know, when you become disenchanted with someone or something, you leave it, it leaves you, there's a kind of a empty feeling, it just didn't work out, it's kind of unpleasant. And so too, when we really look at our internal monologue and come out of it, Often enough, we become disenchanted with it. And inevitably, that disenchantment with our own story is pretty, it's painful. It's painful to come out of our story into the reality of this present moment. There's a certain disappointment, a certain sense of loss, a certain um, quality of it just didn't work out. Things weren't okay. Things aren't okay. And so we, we let go a little bit. We give up a little bit. We see through our story. And we drop into here. Don Juan taught Carlos Castaneda to stop the internal dialogue Sansanim, a Korean Zen master in Providence, teaches his students to cut thinking mind. Neither of those are meant to imply that thoughts are the enemy. But rather, when we can cut the internal dialogue, or cut thinking mind, or see through the internal dialogue, what is actually happening is we are in the present moment. No longer lost inside the cocoon spun out of words. Henry David Thoreau, who lived around here actually, a few miles to the east, he wrote, by a conscious effort of the mind, we can stand aloof 
and all things go by us like a torrent. However intense my experience, I am conscious of the presence of a part of me which is a spectator, sharing no experience but taking note of it. And that is no more I than it is you. That spectator or that spectating, the observing, the noting of the events of our life is not personal, is not me, it's not you. We all know what he is pointing to. We've all had that experience of stepping out of the action, not in a disconnected way, but in a very clear observing way, taking note of what is going on. In that noting, in that being aware of the moments of our life, there is a quality of freedom. There is a quality of presence, of openness, of unboundedness. Whatever comes by at that moment can be seen. And in that, we begin to taste, really, the benefit of mindfulness, the benefit of practice, being free. Being free of identification with our dream, our internal dialogue, being free of it. But it's not easy to come out of the dream, in part because it's painful. We come into the present moment and we discover that the body is not very comfortable. We come into the present moment and we discover that the mind is really not a good friend. We feel lonely, we feel sad, we feel disappointed, we feel anger. We have desires that just can't be met. We're making plans for futures we'll never live. And in that, there's a quality of pain, a quality of ache in our hearts, in our bodies. Emily Dickinson was a poet who also lived near here, to the west a bit. And she said, there is a pain so utter, it swallows substance up and covers it with trance as if in a dream. There is a pain so utter, it swallows substance up and covers it with trance as if in a dream. What we discover in practice is that pain seeing through the dream, seeing through the illusion, seeing through the fantasies of our life and discovering the pain. The pain you feel today, the pain you have felt today, the physical pain, the emotional pain, the heart pain, is a sign that your practice is working for you, that you are coming out of the dream, coming out of the illusions that we live with 
it is the task of our practice to not get identified with that pain, to not personalize the dukkha, the pain, the suffering that we discover in our own very tangible life, but rather to see the universal nature of this quality of all lives. As we all know, practice, the development of insight, the experience of deepening and opening freedom is not a linear process. It's not something that progresses day by day uh, in the retreat or year by year, retreat after retreat, but it is a very, um, you know, two steps forward, one steps back, two steps back, half a step forward. And, but somehow we do slowly make some progress. Freedom is not about how many retreats we've done, how still we can sit, how erudite our exposition of the Dharma. It's about opening to pain and letting go. If you want to measure your practice, measure your pain, It's not easy to open to pain. And what usually happens in our life when painful experience arises is, as Emily Dickinson said, it gets covered up. What does it get covered up with? Sometimes when we experience pain, we just fall asleep. Sometimes when we experience pain, we blame somebody for it. Sometimes when we experience pain, we look for another way out. Sometimes we just get agitated. Sometimes we just don't understand it. And each of those five responses to pain are well-known habits of the mind habits that we all discover in our practice. And these habits are none other than the five hindrances to wakefulness. Because these hindering dreams are so pervasive in our life, I want to spend some time tonight to identify them and to begin uh, to show you how you can work with them in a skillful way. Because inevitably, we all come across the hindrances. Sleepiness, restlessness, doubt, desire, and aversion. Is there anything else that we are aware of? Much of the time, we are uncovering some quality of these hindering mental states. And this talk isn't only for those of you who just showed up two days ago. 
the mind is really very subtle. The hindrances get as subtle as your mindfulness. And so the deeper you go into your mind and the subtler your good meditative experiences become, equally so, the hindrances become equally subtle and difficult to see. And so those of you who've been here for six weeks now may have to look you know, may have to refine the lens through which you notice the hindrances in your practice. They may be there. Maybe. <laughs> I think a talk on the hindrances is the one talk that is given in every retreat. And in spite of that, and in spite of all the retreats that we've all done, and we, we probably all could give a pretty good talk on the hindrances, if not one talk on each of them, five talks. In spite of that, in spite of all we know about the hindrances, all we've read, all we've heard, they still torment us. That is not your fault. But it is an indication of just how deeply rooted these habits are in our mind. We have resorted to desire, we've resorted to dullness, we've resorted to aversion for so long. It's deeper than second nature. It's first nature. Not quite first nature, but it's close. It's just, they are so subtle and so slippery, so difficult to see that we can indulge them and believe to the contrary. That's how slippery they can be. So in the face of this obvious truth that these qualities of mind are so deeply rooted, how do we begin to work with them? The first step or the first stage or the first connection has to be to recognize them. Until we recognize that particular quality of mind we are lost in it and acting it out. Even if we are noting all of our actions, all of our movements, all of our intentions, all of them can be taken, influenced by this particular mental state, aversion, desire, whatever. In my own practice, it seems like it was years of sitting down, remembering the instructions, and promptly falling asleep. 
I don't know how it can happen, but it does. You sit down and you say, okay. And as soon as they close the eyes, you know, the head drops, it bobs and nods. And maybe 20 minutes later, you think, God, I'm sitting. Okay, right. Where's the breath? <laughs> and uh, now it, we, we all know what that's like. But the amazing thing is, even though that was happening, and at times I would struggle with it and say, right, I'm really going to stay awake now, sit up straighter and open my eyes and clench my teeth. And, uh, I would forget, or I would never remember to acknowledge sleepiness. What's happening? I'm struggling. I'm, I'm trying to be mindful. I'm watching the breath. I'm, do I'm doing everything but noticing what's happening. It's, how does that happen? How does it happen that we can be lost in something over and over and over and not even recognize, not pull out of that experience what it is? This is the power of delusion. That's how powerful delusion is. We can be totally immersed in anything and not recognize it. And so the first task of our practice is to get this recognizing tool that just starts recognizing what is this? What is this? And in fact, the way to develop it is to ask yourself the question, what is this experience? What is it? No matter what you think you're doing, struggling and this and that, and that just ask the question, what? Now, most of our training is to ask the question, why? Why do I have to experience this? Why am I experiencing this pain? Why can't I follow the breath? Why am I tired? Why am I this? Why? That is not going to lead you to mindfulness. The question what will, though. Asking yourself what requires that you take a look, that you actually connect with what's going on. And it is connecting that quality of mind that can connect with the experience that puts aside or overcomes sleepiness. And that quality of connecting is the first of the concentrating factors of the mind. Now, those of you who have been here six weeks probably aren't struggling with, you know, bobbing and nodding. Some maybe, occasionally. But there's another form of dullness in the mind, which is experienced as sleepiness, experienced as dullness, but it's, it's not real tiredness like those who just come may be experiencing. It's the experience of dullness, lethargy, heaviness of mind that comes from an imbalance in the concentration and the energy. And because we have been sitting for six weeks and many hours a day and going very slow and it's very quiet, many of you are moving very slow very still, inner and outer. And so the concentration is very strong, in spite of what you may think. It is, really. And when the energy of noting is not equally strong, 
then we we kind of slip into this state of mind that is still and calm and subtle and quiet and so nice. I think, <laughs> I think I'll take a nap. And, that, and that's really what happens. We tranquilize ourselves right into oblivion. It's true. That's, the experience is one of dullness, tight, sleepiness, imprecision in noting, and yet, because we're not bobbing and nodding and struggling and yawning and all, we think, oh, I'm not tired. This is really good. If I could just, if I could just keep it there. Well, the reason you can't keep it there is there's not enough energy. It's really an imbalance in energy. And so, again, the way to raise the energy to deal with that particular manifestation of sloth and torpor is to connect with your experience. And it's connecting every time. It's connecting that overcomes sleepiness. So what's your experience? The experience is calmness, stillness, quiet, subtle, tranquil, pleasant, enjoying. That's the experience. Connecting with those qualities of the experience and just recognizing them on a, on a, a, a regular basis. Just kind of, just noting just enough to keep recognizing what the experience is, connecting with the experience without getting lost in it, without indulging in it, and, of course, falling asleep. It's connecting in every instance that keeps us from slipping into a sleep-like state. The connecting, the turning our attention to, feeling our way into the experience is not in order to get rid of the sleepiness. That is too much of an agenda, too intentional, too energetic, too rough, really, too harsh, too cruel, in a way, to the mind, to the subtlety of the mind. But rather, the turning of our attention to the experience, to connect with it, is in order to know it. Just to know it. Not to fix it, not to get rid of it, not to understand it even, but just to know this is it. What is this? This is it. Taking a nap is not the only way to deal with sleepiness. It's one way, but after a couple days on retreat, it's not the best way. If you're feeling dull and sleepy, there are innumerable things you can do, not least of which is open your eyes, stand up, walk faster. The Buddha suggested pulling your earlobes hard it works. Try it. In any number of physical manipulations of the environment or yourself, being careful how much you sleep, being careful how much you eat, 
being careful how much pain you endure. Pain draining the energy from the mind. But most importantly, it's being willing to look at it. Being willing to turn your attention to sleepiness and experience it. We all fall asleep every night. Many of us fall asleep many times during the day. And yet, what do we actually know about it? What can we say about the experience of sleepiness itself? Where do we feel it in the body? What happens to the mind? If we turn our attention to it, how long does it last? An amazing thing happens. Sleepiness, like any other experience that comes, comes due to certain conditions. And when those conditions pass, sleepiness goes with it. We don't control those conditions. Some of them, but not all of them. And so even in spite of noting, 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 noticing, 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 connecting, connecting, connecting with sleepiness, it may persist. And so we have to be willing to stay there, engaged with it, touching it. It's interesting, though, to explore and to pay close enough attention to see just how the conditions of sleepiness leave. Sleepiness, 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 gone. In an instant, totally alert and awake. It can happen. But we'll only notice it if we're willing to hang in there with the experience of sleepiness being with it, connecting with it. The difficulty, of course, is it's so unpleasant. It's so painful, really. You know, trying to stay awake in the face of sleepiness is excruciating. Not like knee pain, but it's, it's excruciating. But it's that willingness to connect, to stay there, to just be there with it recognizing what's happening. The second step in working with any of these hindrances, any difficult mental state, is to exercise some restraint. To not act out willy-nilly whatever hindering mental state, happens to be in the mind. We know the familiar ways of acting out sleepiness. Take a nap. We also know the familiar ways of acting out aversion. Write a note, sign it metta. And there are any other number of very familiar ways of acting out any of these mental states. What happens when we exercise some restraint? We've recognized, okay, this, this is what's going on. Let me not act out. First, it takes energy not to act out. Right? I mean, you've got, you got to kind of 
hold yourself back a little bit. That's energizing. In that holding back of acting out, we conserve all the energy that we would have dissipated in the acting out. And so that's energizing. Restraint, rather than being a suppression of our energy, is actually a container for enhancement of our energy. And we can see this in our practice by how intense things get quickly. When we don't act out, when we don't dissipate our energy, then we have more energy for staying present. And in that presence, the mind gets collected. It gets powerful. It's not dissipating. It's not skidding away. It's staying right here. And when we look at and when we connect with the moment's experience, it is intense. Remember the Ben and Jerry's? It's intense. Right? Not only pain intense, but sweet is intense, and coffee's intense, and tea's intense. Somebody came in the other day, and they were really in this had this uh, dramatic, uh, it was a childlike quality of just bare attention. And they were talking about breakfast, how they, they really got there for breakfast. They really woke up to breakfast and, and, and really tasting what they were having. And she was ecstatic. She was just glowing with discovery and delight and excitement. And you know what you were having that day? Uh, One of the millet and prunes. (laughs) Who could get so delighted with millet and prunes? And yet, and yet, It's because of that energy, it's because of that very pure quality of mind that it connects with what millet, plain, bare, unadorned, unadorned, (laughs) uncondimented millet. It's delightful. That's intense. That's what I mean when I say it's intense. When you don't act out, you don't dissipate your energy, experience gets intense, quick. That energy, that increasing energy, the intensity of that energy is the energy that's required to see through our dreams. If we act out, our hindering mental states, we dissipate the energy required to see through our internal monologues.
And so now each of us has to look at our behavior throughout the day and see and locate those places where we are acting out any of our hindering mental states. Desire, aversion, doubt, restlessness, sleepiness. When we're acting out, when we, you know the whole format of the retreat, sitting, walking, silence, no mail, no phones, no this, no that, da da da, you know, the rules. That's, those rules are not arbitrary. Those rules are very precisely uh, tailored to the work that we do here for containing energy. And when we step outside of those guidelines, for the most part, we are acting out one of the hindrances. If you find yourself acting outside of the guidelines of the retreat, that's okay. That's okay. We're not going to shame you. We're not going to, you know, kind of send the mindfulness police after you or something. But just take a look and ask yourself, which hindrance am I acting out? Just so you'll know for yourself which one it is. So we recognize the quality of minds, the hindrances. We exercise some restraint by not acting them out. The third step in working with any of the hindrances is really very important understanding. When we're caught in any of these mental states, these hindering mental states, The feeling is, and our belief usually is, I can't practice with this happening. Somehow they come with this little footnote that says, as soon as I can get rid of this, then I can be mindful. Right? As soon as I get rid of my sleepiness, then I can really practice good. As soon as this restlessness, as soon as this restlessness calms down, then I can be really mindful. As soon as I get rid of this anger, or as soon as I kind of dissipate this or forget it or something, then I, my practice will really take off. And we have this belief, although no one has ever told us that. And in fact, the Buddha said just the opposite. These mental states, these hindering mental states, are the very place to do your practice. That's where you do your practice. When you're sleepy, when you're dull, when you're restless, when you're frustrated, when you don't know, when, when you don't even believe that practice is working. That's when you do practice. Doubt is one of the uh, hindering mental states. And doubt manifests in the mind as, why did I come? (laughs) Does this practice really work? Am I doing it right? Can I do this really? 
I don't know if I like that instruction I got at interview today. And these are all forms of doubt. And yet when they arise in the mind, they're compelling. You know, when the thought, am I doing this right, arises in our mind, it is really difficult to keep noting, to keep practicing. Because somehow we want to answer the question. We want to put that thought out of our mind so that we can get back to practice. Or if we decide that I really can't do it or the practice really doesn't work, we can leave and go home now. But we've got to decide. We think we have to decide, yes, it works and I'm going to keep doing it. Or no, it doesn't and I got five weeks off. <laughs> right? It's, it's not that at all. That very thought, does this work? Am I doing it right? That's the place to recognize doubt. That's doubt. And to keep recognizing it for as long as it's there. Being willing to stay connected to it, sustaining your attention on it, not wandering away, not acting it out. Acting out doubt, you know, is going back to your room, finding Jack Cornfield's book, looking up in chapter 4 what he says about doubt. That's acting out. The answer isn't in the book. None of these hindrances, how to deal with them really, is in the book. It's in your, it's in your own willingness to stay connected with it and finding your own way to put up with them. Finding your own way to endure them. Finding your own way to outlast them. Remember that sleepiness you had earlier today? Or that doubt you had earlier, that aversion you had earlier today, that multiple hindrance attack. Where is it now? Gone. They don't last forever. Even though, another interesting thought that comes with these hindrances, it's not even a thought. It's not that distinct. It's a kind of a mist that kind of floats through the mind. When these mental states come, they come with this whiff that says, this is the way it's going to be forever. And so we start saying to ourselves, is this the way it's going to be forever? I don't know if I can do it. And that's true. None of us could. If, if one of those mental states was it, you know, the big it forever, uh, I don't think we'd do it. But it isn't. They don't last. And so we need to reframe our understanding. We recognize, okay, this is doubt. We have enough sense to not act it out, restrain our energy a little bit. And then we have to reframe our understanding from, I've got to get rid of this, to this is the very place to practice mindfulness. And what are we mindful of? We're mindful of doubt. And we're mindful of how doubt feels in the body. We're mindful of the quality of thoughts that doubt uh, spits up in the mind. We turn our attention to doubt. We really take a look. Say, this is doubt. If we get caught in the content of our doubt, does it work or doesn't it? Can I or can't I? You know, do they know what they're talking about or don't they? If we get caught in that either or, yes, no, can I, can't I? We're lost.
we're lost. If we're looking for an answer to that question, we are totally blinded by it. It's only when we step back and say, this is just doubt, that we start being mindful of it, not indulging in it. Nothing is outside of the realm of mindfulness practice. Nothing. No matter what you are experiencing, the most intense, the most subtle, the most pleasant, the most unpleasant, the most sublime, the most disgusting, the most nothingness, whatever, it's all within the reach of mindfulness. We can be aware, mindfully aware, of anything. And in fact, eventually we'll be mindful of everything. But it takes a certain willingness you know, to connect with your experience, to stay with the experience, and to let it speak to you, to, to really touch it, and to let it reveal itself to you. And this is the fourth step in working with any of these hindrances. We recognize them, we exercise some restraint, we, ac- we reframe our understanding, and then we let them reveal their nature to us. What is the nature of the breath? You know, tightness, pulling, stretching, heaviness, hardness, you know, tingling, heat, warmth, coolness, whatever. Expansion, contraction of the chest. What is the nature of pain? As we get close to it, it's first hardness. And then we get close to it and we see it's not really hardness, it's moving, it's shifting. And then we get close and we see it's not really uh, pain, it's hardness. And then it shifts, it morphs into pulling. And then that pulling morphs into burning log. And then the, the burning log morphs into something else. And we stay connected with it. We stay, we sustain our attention on it. And we let the experience reveal itself to us. If we don't connect with it, we'll never know really what the experience is whether it's mental state or physical experience. One of the most difficult, one of the most unpleasant of the uh, hindrances, they're all unpleasant, really, if you really connect with them. But maybe the most unpleasant is restlessness. Restlessness is have an, an overabundance of energy in the mind, in the body. And it just, it's really, really uncomfortable. It's not so much intense pain, but it is very uncomfortable to stay in your body. It's a feeling of wanting to jump out of your own skin. And we do that by wandering. Wandering around physically, wandering around in our mind, acting out restlessness. The way to work with restlessness is to not to kind of narrow your focus on some little piece of it, which soon becomes explosive, but rather to open to as wide a horizon as you can. Open your eyes. Go outdoors. Step outside of the schedule of the retreat, even. Give yourself some 
psychological space as well as physical space and then stand or sit perfectly still in a comfortable uh, posture. And then just recognize that everything you're experiencing is just restlessness. Just restlessness. If that's a little too intense, hug a tree. Restlessness kind of keeps us hovering, you know, a few feet off the ground. And it's really difficult to get grounded when you're, when you're restless. The mind is just so bubbly, it's just kind of flitting away. And anything that can ground you, uh, we like to say, eat rocks. You know, something, get a little ballast in you to keep your feet on the ground. But it's getting grounded that helps with, with uh, restlessness. So when any of these difficult mental states arise, we, the first step is to recognize them. Second is to exercise some restraint, not act them out. The third is to reframe our understanding so that we are willing to turn our attention to them, connect with them, and let them forth reveal their true nature. And in that revealing what we realize is first they're not pleasant they're really painful all of them there is a quality of uh, unsatisfactoriness with all of these even desire sometimes we get blinded by the feeling of anticipating satisfaction. And so we, we, we kind of pursue our, the object of our desire, whether it's coffee, half a cup a day, prunes, you know, two a day, a person that we feel connected to somehow, special, um, whatever. And so we pursue that. And in the pursuit, the pursuit is stimulating. It's exciting. It's interesting. And we think, well, what's wrong with this? What's so unpleasant? What's so unsatisfying about this? <laughs> Take a look. If we turn our attention away from what we are pursuing, the object of our desire, and we turn our attention back on the feeling of desire, then you discover just how unpleasant desire really is. It is not so exciting. It's not so tantalizing. It's not so enticing. It's pretty painful. And that's the way of working with desire and attachment, clinging, craving, is to guard your senses. Guard your senses means don't look, don't listen, don't smell, don't taste. What? as Upandita used to say, or I, th I think it might be in the text, act as if you are deaf, dumb, blind, and sick. But that's only in regard to your senses. You know, when you're sick, when you're sick, 
Are you out looking around and, you know, just kind of soaking it all up? No. You are withdrawn into yourself. You're not moving very fast. You're not interested in consuming anything. You're just right there. Okay, that's the place of practice. Staying right there. And seeing. You'll see it all right there. It's not out there. There's a lot of enticements out there, but not knowledge. Self-knowledge is in here. A while back, earlier this year, Kamala and I did a month of practice at home. And um, for the most part, it's all practice. We just don't answer the phone or email. We don't go out. Somebody brings us some food. And we just do the minimum, pay the bills. And, and the rest of the day is devoted to mindfulness. A lot of sitting, some walking, a little gardening, etc. And in that ideal conditions for just just being present, my mind has a habit of making Dharma talks out of anything. It doesn't even have to be fun or pleasant. It, it's, just, it's just seeing how can I weave this into the Dharma talk somewhere. And the mind just starts spinning out on, oh yeah, here's the organization. Da, 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 da. And I get this plan in the mind. It's like a Dharma talk plan. you know. The, and it is incessant. It just kind of torments me until I put down a few notes, and then it still torments me. And I'll watch it, and I'll know, all right, attachment, clinging, wanting, desire, whatever it is, I just keep noting it, noting it, noting it, and eventually it goes. <laughs> eventually it goes. What a relief. And I look at the topic and what I, the notes I wrote down the next day, and I think, what in the world was I thinking? I mean, this is ridiculous. And it happens with desire a lot. You know, the object of your desire today is the object of your disgust tomorrow. <laughs> well, it, that's the way it works, a lot. If we can just exercise a little restraint, watch the desire itself arise, burn, pass away, Whew. What a relief. We realize these things don't last. They don't offer any satisfaction. And they are completely out of our control. We don't invite them. We can't really make them go away. We see the three characteristics. Anicca, impermanence, anatta, being... Uh, without an inherent uh, substance, and dukkha. They don't offer anything stable or satisfying. We see these these three characteristics are realized if we let the moment reveal itself to us. If we are willing to stay there with it, that's what we realize. Deep and liberating insight to be able to step out of 
our dreams, that cocoon of spinning words that we've created as a nest for ourselves. And it's by seeing these qualities within that dialogue, within that monologue, within that stream of thought that is creating this apparent reality, interpreting the momentary events of our life into a story. And then the story we like, we hate, we get tired about, we get restless with, and we doubt. And mindfulness sees through the story. That's the whole, that's the whole, that's our practice. Stopping the spin, taking a look, and seeing that there really isn't any substance to it. These hindering mental states are bound to arise no matter what day of practice it is or what year of practice it is or what lifetime of practice it is. They hang around in all of their subtlety. But we can work with them. We, we can begin to recognize them, identify them, not suffer under their enchanting spell and in the process become free momentarily and those moments accumulate until there's a real powerful feeling and experience of freedom in our lives. So let's sit for a moment. Shabkar, a Tibetan yogi, said, Snow lions don't freeze in snow mountains. Eagles don't fall out of the sky. Fish don't drown in water. And practitioners don't die of hunger. So cast away this life's concerns and give up plans for the future. Thank you for listening to the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.